Dear friends of Jesus Christ, this, uh, this past week, uh, the day after Liam was born, I, I, or maybe two days after, I, I popped in on Megan and Jacob at their house and spent a few minutes just holding their newborn baby. Liam, what a, what a cutie. Infants are uh, so amazing. I mean, they're so helpless and, and small, and yet they come into the world with a few uh, capabilities. They have this ability to, to kick their little legs. They can make uh, a few noises, not, not too loud at first, but that amps up pretty quick. Um, basically, one of their, their main abilities is to be able to, to move their mouth in such a way so as to attain milk. They come with that capacity. And yet contained within their small frame is all this potential. Potential that will be unveiled as their lives unfold. Uh, pretty soon, Liam's going to learn how to express his anger, right? So, soon after that, he's going to learn how to smile. Slowly, he'll come to experience the full range of human emotion. And one day, a number of years from now, Liam will come to discover that he has within himself a capacity to be attracted sexually to other people. We humans are sexual creatures born with a sex drive. This isn't simply a byproduct of evolution. It's part of God's good design. In the beginning, God created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed the man and the woman and said, be fruitful and multiply. And when the Lord God saw Adam all alone in the garden, the Lord God said, this, this here is not good. So he created Eve, a helper, a companion, someone similar to Adam, but different from Adam, a perfect fit. And immediately upon seeing Eve, Adam's creational capacity for attraction was stirred. Ah, he says, here at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then the author of Genesis provides us with this conclusion. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Sexual desire and the invitation to unifying procreative sex is found in the opening pages of Scripture. The Bible celebrates this part of us. God celebrates this part of us. It is good. But while being a remarkable feature of our creaturely life, this gift, says God, is to be practiced within boundaries. These boundaries protect the gift as well as protecting the community. The scriptures teach us that sex is to be used and enjoyed within the confines of a lifelong covenant relationship, a marriage. Its purpose is to unify a husband and a wife, to form a bond between them. And connected with this, its other purpose is to be a means through which children and new life are, come into the world. Love and procreation. Love and procreation. And when sex begins to stray from these ends, problems ensue, and the ramifications can be disastrous. 
You don't have to look far into the Genesis story to see um, the wages of a poorly ordered sex life. When the angels, or messengers of God, arrive in Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot welcomes them into his house. But then the men of the town have seen that these visitors have come, and they surround Lot's house, and they demand that Lot lets the visitors out. These men want to sexually violate the visitors. So Lot, wanting to protect his guests, offers these men his two virgin daughters instead. Thanks, Dad, right? But the men of the city aren't interested in Lot's daughters. Pleasure is not what they're after. They are interested in defiling these men through sex. This is a rape scene, not a love scene. And God intended sex to bring people together. It was never meant to be an instrument of war or defilement. Jacob's family also showcases the wages of a poorly ordered sex life. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Leah was jealous of the attention that uh, Jacob gave to Rachel, and Rachel was jealous of the attention, or, and Rachel was jealous of the babies that Leah was able to have for Jacob. So Rachel gave Jacob her servant that she might have surrogate children through her servant. And then Leah was like, hey, I want more children too. They start this little children war for so you can have the most kids. So Leah gives her servant to Jacob that she might have surrogate children through her. And Jacob does nothing to curb the, curb the, the jealousy and the competition that is tearing his family apart. And the impact is huge. There's factions that are created in the family. There's favorites, favorite sons, favorite wives. Sometimes we wonder why God doesn't put a stop to polygamy, for instance, in the Old Testament. But Jewish scholar Robert Alter notes that we shouldn't be fooled by God's silence on sexual sin in Genesis. The moral of the story is absolutely clear that God doesn't need to drive it home. Polygamy is an absolute disaster, an absolute disaster. It doesn't go well for anyone, ever. The clearest boundary placed on our sexuality in the Old Testament is found in uh, the Ten Commandments. The command is short and simple. You shall not commit adultery. Basically, it's, it's not hard to figure this out. This is simple. Don't be sexually intimate, this command is saying, with someone whom you are not married to. Interestingly, the emphasis in this command is not the protection of one's own marriage per se, although that's part of it too, but the protection of one's neighbor's marriage. The idea is this, don't interfere with someone else's marriage. Respect the fact that your neighbor's wife belongs to your neighbor. Respects the fact that your, your neighbor's husband belongs to his wife. They have a bond. And maybe that bond has produced a family. Disrupting that bond disrupts the marriage. And that, in turn, disrupts the whole family. And when families are disrupted, the whole community is impacted. More on that next week. So hence the command, you shall not commit adultery. The trouble is that we humans were not only created with a sexual appetite, but we are also born with an imagination. 
And while it's one thing to control your physical impulses, it's another thing completely to control the scenes that unfold in your mind. And as per his usual, Jesus is going to take the commands deeper and take us deeper with him. He wants his disciples to possess a righteousness that that surpasses that of the Pharisees. He wants them to not only be skilled at curbing their bad behavior, but being good from the inside out. You have heard that it was said, says Jesus, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Of course, it goes without saying here that Jesus isn't merely talking about men in this passage. Men aren't the only creatures that commit adultery in their imaginations. However, it strikes me that perhaps this command is especially for men, given what we know about the typical male sex drive. Anyone who looks lustfully at a man or a woman has already committed adultery with him or her in their heart. Now the Greek word to look in this passage is a present active participle. This communicates ongoing action. So the looking that Jesus is talking about here isn't simply a simple glance. This is a lingering look, a stare, a gaze that consumes. To notice beauty in another human being is is not the problem. We were created to notice beauty. And that fuzzy feeling that is produced in us uh, when we notice a beautiful person and are attracted to that person, that's not the problem either. That too is part of a, a good feature of our created existence. And that's even true when you're feeling that towards someone you're not married to or someone who's married to someone else. I used to think that getting married would would radically change my capacity for attraction. I thought wrongly that I would only ever be attracted to my wife once I got married. But that's not how it works. Your capacity to notice beauty, to be sexually attracted to other people, that doesn't really turn off. And it's important to know that that capacity, it's not bad in and of itself. It's a good part of our created design. The trouble isn't the first look or the fuzzy feeling of attraction. The trouble is what we do next with that, with that look and that feeling. To lust is to engage in willful, desirous looking. It's looking with the intent to possess, to undress, to consume. Someone else becomes an object of a fantasy going on in your mind. Jesus is hard on the eyes in this passage, but I'm thinking that eyes are only a small part of lust. Eyes often serve as a gateway to lust, uh, but, uh, but it doesn't stop there. And it, really takes place in our mind or our imagination. One of the most damaging consequences of lust in life is the way it transforms another person into an object designed for one's own sexual gratification. Uh, Frederick Bruner, who I quote a lot, says it best. 
In lust, the other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling, tinder, a thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, and to feel one's power. It seems harmless enough. I mean, it's not like you're hurting anybody by what's going on in your imagination. But is that really true? I mean, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and love your neighbor as yourself. It's awfully hard to love your neighbor as yourself when your neighbor has become an object to be consumed. You're not really interacting with a real person. You're interacting with this object you've created. And there's an impact on you too, especially when lust moves from being an occasional slip to a well-worn habit. I mean, how do you feel after a night of looking through the internet, uh, looking for internet porn, which isn't, of course, hard to find? It's almost hard to look people in the eye after an evening of that. You feel, well, you don't feel like a million bucks, that's for sure. You feel depleted, ashamed. You feel further apart from people, isolated. My friend who is a counselor in in Hamilton, he's a marriage counselor, he says that porn even transforms someone's image of God, their perception of God, In his experience, he says that people who regularly view porn have a hard time imagining that God could ever be gracious and and kind towards them. Like Adam and Eve, they begin to hide from God. They they try to get away from God because they are afraid of of what God might do. They notice their nakedness and they feel ashamed. And it's sad because we are created to to live in... uh, intimacy with God and intimacy in one another. We are designed to experience this this connection, but lust left to run its course begins to destroy both relationships with God and other people. And lust run amok will eventually end up impacting your behavior too. Just as murder and murderous words grow out of resentment, so do sexual offenses and inappropriate sexual behavior grow out of lust. It starts with wandering eyes, and then it moves to wandering hands. Then you're crossing boundaries you never would have dreamed you, have, you would ever cross. The Bruce Smith MacArthur uh, homicide case has been in the news lately. Uh, MacArthur killed... Um, eight men over the last 10 years. Um, And I know that this example is a difficult one. I mean, uh, MacArthur had a complicated sexual history. For years he tried to be straight when in fact he was really oriented the other way. So I'm sure that had a big impact on him. But still, how does one move slowly from sex, seeking out pleasure, to murder? And the answer is that it's one step at a time, one day at a time. Keep feeding your lust. Keep fueling your appetite for the next experience. 
slowly it will lead you to very dark places. And it's so deceptive. It's so deceptive. It always seems like true sexual satisfaction is around the corner. Just one more click of the mouse. Just one more rendezvous with whoever. It's always out there. We're going to arrive at this place of feeling satisfied. But it never comes. And what satisfaction is found never remains for long. Sex promises the world, but it can't deliver the goods. And it leaves us feeling more empty than we ever felt before, sometimes. Some of you know these dark places. And others of you have experienced the ramifications of someone else's inability to restrain and control their lust. In the end, everyone gets hurt. The victims especially get hurt, but the perpetrators get hurt too. It's no wonder that Jesus proposes severe action, severe action to cut lust off before it has a chance to grow. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish that Jesus could be a little more understanding and, and nuanced in his applications. Uh, I, want, I wish he would say, you know, I know lust is hard. Like, do your best. You can do it. Just try and I'll be with you and we'll get through this together. But no, Jesus is so brutally direct. Better to limp your way through life than to go running full speed into hell. I thought of, for a while about Jesus' strong words here. Why so extreme? But then I thought back to times in my life um, where I have had to wage war against sin. And any time I've ever experienced freedom from sin, it's at least partly due to the fact that I stopped lying to myself and I had the courage to start telling myself the cold, hard truth about the situation. Sin is so deceptive. It, is all, it will always help you find a way to justify your behavior. And the only way out is to name reality as concretely as you can, to name the impact that this has had on you and others, and to own it. The truth sometimes hurts, but it will also set you free. And Jesus wants you to be free. Now, obviously, he's not actually telling us to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands. His point is simply that this serious issue requires immediate and severe action. Don't negotiate with your lust. Wage war against your lust. If the internet is a problem for you, cut the cable and get it out of the house. If the smartphone is a problem for you, 
Get a flip phone, right? They still make those. No screen. If your eyes tend to wander at the office, ask for a different view or quit your job and find another job. Don't negotiate with your lust. Wage war. You don't know, you don't know where it will take you, right? There's danger here. You could end up doing things that you'll regret for the rest of your life. And, says Jesus, it could take you to the front gates of hell itself. This is a hard word. It better be a word of Jesus, or else this is too much for us to bear. A word of Jesus that comes with it the power needed to live in freedom. There are, it seems, a few key weapons that we need to pick up in our war against lust. The truth is essential, but the truth needs support. Since lust tends to isolate, and since isolation makes us more susceptible to sin, one of the ways to combat lust power in our lives is to seek accountability in a community of grace and truth. I used to be a part of a Bible study with a few guys in town. And every Wednesday morning, at the end of every Bible study session, we were asked a few questions, accountability questions. And one of the questions I was asked every week is, are you being faithful to your spouse? Every Wednesday, I had to answer that question. And there was a fair amount of vulnerability in the group. And so people would state the truth about what actually happened in the past week. And then in response, there would be grace and truth. So we're not pushing you away. We're not leaving you in shame. We're pulling you in, grace. But now we're going to ask you that question next week. We hope that there's a better response. And man, was that ever helpful for me, that accountability no judgment around the table, no fear of being shamed, but no pandering pats on the back either. Grace and truth. I wish that for you. Sharing your struggle in community can be so healing. And I hope, I hope to get a few emails early this week of people that wish to have accountability and support. I'd love to connect you together. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing this part of you with people at church or, or me, there's a few AA-style groups that meet around town for people who struggle with pornography and lust. Freedom is possible. Go get help. Another key piece in the war against lust is setting up barriers in your mind that disrupt the well-worn path from attraction to lust. Remember that sexual desire and attraction is natural. It is just going to happen. It's a good part of creaturely life. It's when we dwell with the attraction that we get ourselves in trouble. So we have to disrupt the move from attraction to lust. Part of that involves waging war with your eyes. I remember in college that there came a day when I made a decision not to make second looks. You know what I mean by that, right? No second looks. Notice and 
don't go back. Go back to work. Do something else. And it became apparent to me just how often I did that. And I became convicted that that needed to change. So that was the first step for me to disrupt that move. Another thing that I've done, I'm sharing my own story here because I have my own story with lust, but another thing that has been helpful for me is that I, I tend to name beauty when I see it. Usually I do that inside, I don't do that out loud. But, uh, but to acknowledge the truth in the situation, right? Um, so name the attraction. Oh, you experiencing this. Um, Feel the attraction. You're feeling this. And then, let the other person go. So, cut it off right there. Um, here's an example from a recent moment I had. I was meeting with uh, my spiritual director the other day. Uh, we start each session in silence, and that silence can last for a fairly long time. And I'm the one who breaks the silence. So I'm in this moment of silence, connecting with God, trying to be attuned to his work in my life and just being aware of his presence. And then wouldn't you know it, into my head pops a beautiful face, face of a woman. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, get out. I'm trying to, trying to pray here. Like, uh, you know, let's, let's get back. But it just kept coming back. So finally, I didn't freak out. I said, my, aren't you beautiful? I'm so thankful that God has made you. Now have a nice day. Goodbye. And it worked. <laughs> it doesn't always work. But that's part of the uh, disrupting the move from attraction into action. To name it, feel it, and let it go. I've also found that reading about the injustice found in the porn industry has been helpful for me in my own battle against porn. Mary Lee Bauma, who's coming here in a few weeks to, to lead a talk on, on, on human sexuality, she's done a fair amount of research in this area. And she wrote a frank article that can be found on the Do Justice blog of the CRCNA. It's called Porn Use. It's about more than personal sin. You gotta read that this week. You have to read it. Did you know that most women who work in the porn industry rarely last for more than six months? The damage done to their body is such that they can't continue. Did you know that a healthy chunk of porn found online is produced by pimps who force their prostitutes to create the videos? Did you know that the porn industry is a leading player in the human trafficking world? So when we participate in that, we participate in all that injustice. And as my awareness of that grew, my desire to get that stuff out of my life increased. And the final and most effective weapon we have in the fight against lust is the gospel itself. Man, if God kept a record of our sexual sins, our second glances, 
if he kept a record of what takes place in our imaginative life, who could stand? But with God, there is forgiveness, says the psalmist. Jesus came in the flesh, meaning that he experienced firsthand what it's like to wage war against lust. He was stripped naked and objectified, which means that he also knows what it likes to be a victim of injustice and to have one's body parts paraded before others. He bore our sin and our shame. He was isolated so that we who live in hiding could be restored to community with God and neighbor. His body was broken and poured out for the complete forgiveness of all our sin. And yes, his blood applies to you too. Totally and completely clean is what the gospel declares over each one of us who comes to Christ in faith. Totally and completely clean. Christ knows the things you've tried to bury or leave in your past, the scenes that haunt you at night. He knows you and he loves you and he loves you from the inside out. And he died to redeem you from the inside out. Totally, completely clean. And I think together we need to pick ourselves up to walk hand in hand, to walk into the light together. Our world needs some sexual sanity to a community that experiences the true joy and purpose of this good gift that God has made. People everywhere are discovering that lust is a fraud, a false God that leads to isolation and emptiness. And I think we have an opportunity to let the world see the beauty and power of God glorifying sexuality. Amen.